everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Elixir Mix podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey. Josh Adams. Hey. Mark Erickson. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Claudio Ortolina. Hello, everyone. Now, I made the joke on, on Ruby Rogues, and for different reasons, I know how to say your name, too. It's been nice. It is, it is very pleasant to hear it pronounced correctly. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick, let people know uh, who you are, what you do? Yeah, I'm Claudio. I work for Erlang Solutions based in London, United Kingdom. I'm a developer, essentially, a consultant. I spend most of my time working on with different customers, usually with a one that goes on for a, for a while, like long projects, and then like spot spot assignments here and there. I work 100% with, uh, with Elixir. I've been doing that for, uh, I think, almost three years, uh, two years in this, in this specific job. And I got the opportunity to speak to a, quite a good number of people on uh, concrete production projects that they have. So it gives me the, the opportunity to see how they use the language, what are the, the hurdles, the, the problems they have, going from, I don't know, architecture down to how do I test this thing, which is incredibly tricky because you have to synchronize three different pieces and I don't know how to do it. And then we can figure it out together. So it's, it's challenging at times, but at the end of the day, it's quite, uh, it's quite rewarding. That sounds awesome. And you mentioned Erlang Solutions. We had uh, Francesco Cesarini on Ruby Rogues episode 208. So if people are interested in that, the episode's a few years old, but still great information there. And if you want to find out more about Erlang and Erlang Solutions, check it out. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's not technically my boss, but he's in practice is my boss. Like it's, uh, so he, he's the founder of the company, is incredibly passionate about anything related to distributed systems and Erlang. And I, I recommend this, whatever he, sort of like books he wrote, they, they're really good, uh, really good read. Awesome. Now, we brought you on to talk about some of the, the process things and, and things that people run into doing Elixir. And, and I'm kind of curious, just to get us started, is there one thing that kind of stands out to you as the easiest or most common thing that you can fix in your process or in the way you set up Elixir projects? That's, uh, so there's a, I think, in general, people really pick up the language very quickly. That is, that is true across the board with even if I think about different languages than people know before approaching Elixir, the, the learning curve is, is, really, is really fast in the beginning. Uh, what I always notice is people uh, get to the point where they, they go beyond maybe like the simple sequential program or, the, or a program that has a, a clear you know, HTTP interface, like maybe a you know, web application where you do everything in your, uh, in your controller or in your, uh, during your request cycle. And then when they venture in, in sort of like asynchronous programming or uh, evented or concurrent, uh, that's when they, they sort of like stop and, uh, and they're going to be puzzled. So they start to look into, uh, into concurrent programming and, um, and it, it starts to get a bit li- difficult at that point. And I've, that is a very, very common thing. I, I'm, I'm just trying to think about uh, projects where there wasn't a, a point that required more work and more thinking, but uh, I think it's a, across the board is, is the thing that gets people a little bit scratching their head in the beginning. And over time, they can get over that, obviously, like everyone, uh, like you put some enough effort into it and you just get over it. But you, you see a lot of things that get repeated project to project and things that could be much better or easier or simpler. And you sort of like see and then make the same changes and then try to distill them into, into a series of steps they can replicate across projects. But uh, it's difficult to move that knowledge from company to company. But I guess it makes my job a little bit easier because I, I can sort of look at things and just say, ah, okay, that's, that's the same problem. And we can look at it this way and try to solve it. I don't know if it, make, if it makes sense, the whole thing. I guess it's just a, a repetition. I, uh, when I came to Elixir, one of the things that really excited about me was OTP. And, you know, the idea of supervisors and these interprocesses in communication and sending messages, and that really got me excited. You know, I loved pattern matching. I loved all of the features of just the, the language itself, but it was really OTP that was the most exciting for me because that was the newest kind of like 
power that I saw in this language in this in this uh, in the beam. And I think that's kind of what you're you're saying there, right? Like it's when people they they say, you know, they come to the language and they figure out, okay, pattern matching that is so cool. That look at all this awesome code I can throw away that I used to write and it can just write it better. But it is really when they get to concurrency. And so one of the things that I've seen people do, and I'm curious if you've seen this as well, is where people like uh, I've seen a lot of people where they come from Ruby as a background. And when they come to Elixir and they start getting into the area of OTP, rather than learn OTP, like how to do it themselves, they just say, well, I'll just use this library or I'll still use Redis and I'll still use these other things um, that are kind of implementing OTP concepts for me. Is that something you see a lot and how do you uh, address that for people? So I, I guess I should have said, OTP as the first thing, like I sort of like went around it, but that, that is definitely what I was referring to. I think you, you have a point. It is true that if you sort of like drop down to the building blocks of, of process and message passing and then OTP, you would get all of that, all of that knowledge and then you can build upon and build something that could fit your use case. Like you, you build your own abstraction on top of a, of a gen server or you look at your supervision tree and everything. There's an element of, uh, like, for example, Elixir provide already some abstractions on top of this. Like, it provides, like, tasks and agents. And uh, they, they have a really nice API, right? They, they're very, they're, they're simple when you look at them because you look very few functions. The documentation is great. And you, you, you look at them and you start using them. And uh, things on the surface work, work very nicely. The part where it gets a little bit trickier is when you start to push some traffic onto these applications, and then suddenly there's a lot of surprises around. Uh, okay, why is why is this slowing down, or uh, where where is the problem in this area? And sometimes it boils down to one agent that is collecting messages uh, without being able to to process them fast enough. And it's not problems that you have at day one, right? We a lot of companies don't have enough traffic to really put the VM or the runtime under real stress. It's uh, it will handle like it will handle like if you under request per second. I mean, it depends on what you do, but most of the times it's okay. You throw a little bit more hardware and it's gonna be it's gonna be okay. But when it comes to maybe like six months in, a year in, or a little bit more, which is where a lot of companies are, are now, we are, we are seeing projects of a certain size now, it's, very, uh, it's increasingly rare to find uh, little greenfield projects. Uh, most of the customers we, we work with, whether it's, I don't know if it's because of the reputation of the company or like it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, but we, the, I get to see projects that have a certain volume of code or a volume of traffic and it gets to the point where these little things down the line become problems because in the end those building blocks if you if you break them apart and you look at the OTP building blocks then you can see okay this is a gen server so if I do a call it's going to queue at that point it's going to wait and then I, I'm going to see what that means and I'm going to possibly measure that and then move on but when you start with the abstractions, as you mentioned, whether it's third parties or uh, or built in in the in the Elixir standard library, some of these some of this knowledge gets somewhat hidden, and uh, you you come across it later, which is a it's a double edged sword. It's nice because not many people not people don't need to know everything from the start to be productive, and that's really really good. But at the same time, it postpones a moment where that type of knowledge is is required, and that's when like the community can jump in and literature and books and uh, everything that we can do as a community to make that transition easier, where when you require that knowledge, it's much more accessible. And in that way, compared to a couple of years ago, it's much, much better now. There's way more material, there's way more open source code that people can look at. So reading the source is incredibly vital at this stage, even more than, I would say in many cases, even more than reading more articles or more. Uh, books about the matter because you you don't come across a lot of the edge cases that you see in actual code and there's plenty of libraries that end up stretching these boundaries so it's it it's definitely a much better state of things now you talked about how it the, the way things are set up it kind of postpones the point where people 
have to start diving into this. Do you recommend then that beginners dive into OTP and things like that? Or is, is it appropriate to have that postponed for you? I think it's okay to postpone it, to be honest. I, I, there's, a, there's an element of like the, mo- the first time you write your uh, something on top of a gen server or the first time you build a supervision tree that works, it's, it's, it's a nice feeling. There might be a temptation to say, you know, to, to use that as some sort of a rite of passage in using the language or, uh, or something that people have to do. I don't necessarily believe that uh, in the sense that a lot of companies they spend like maybe three, six months building a product that it's, it works, it's performant, it does the job, and uh, everyone's happy. And they don't have to write explicitly a single line of code that touches OTP constructs. They just use whatever is provided by the framework they're using, uh, whether it's through Phoenix or through other, uh, other specific libraries, it doesn't really matter, but they might not need it at all. And I, I think it's important to keep that because it gives people the ability to build something that they they're happy about they and you know the, the feedback cycle is keeps them keeps them satisfied and uh, gives them like energy to move forward I think what what's the missing link at this point is that a person may come to the point where uh, it's like wearing like old clothes that you they don't fit you anymore like you feel like you want to you know, you want to change uh, your shirt or you want, to, you want a different T-shirt because that one is too tight. So you want one, okay, and I just want one, which is, I don't know, I'll just go on with this metaphor because it might have a point. But uh, more, more colorfuls or with more things and then you, then you want to pick more tools uh, because maybe you have a problem now that you didn't have in the beginning. So that's fine. You, you approach it when the time comes. And uh, I think the, the, real, the real thing that the community is is doing it keep so like it's important that we keep doing that is recognizing when people are ready to to get there to jump in that in in that knowledge in the at the point like reaching for uh, all of the concurrent libraries and constructs when they're ready because if if it's too early it's just going to be too much uh, it's just going to be too much stuff uh, straight away particularly if it's you know the first language you pick up or first functional language you pick up then there's already enough into it that you don't want to throw, uh, I think, concurrency right there at the beginning. I think it's, it's a, there, there's different, you know, different people in the community, in the Bing community have different opinion. I think you, you can meet people that encourage you to like start directly with process from day one because that's where the power of the VM is. That's, that's true and the, in a way that's when you really your your code and your infrastructure can really make a big jump, but it doesn't mean that you need that you need that upfront. You might not need that for uh, for some time before uh, you before you actually need that. You can build a lot of things that are completely fine without it. I mean, really, I, I look at it as is the domain model that you're modeling right now is the domain problem you're modeling uh, inherently concurrent. Like, because because then you need processes. But before that, if you're just building a web app, like Phoenix needed concurrency, and so it used OTP. But you don't if you're just building some CRUD app. Because in a way, in some cases, like the 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 more you don't need it, the better it is. Because like concurrent code, I mean, OTP is great, but concurrent code is not. It's tricky independently from the tool. Like you you may have good tools to model the problem, but concurrent problems are require more testing, more thinking, more, uh, I don't know, more, more design in a way. So if you don't need it, it's much better if you don't, don't use it because then you can, you can live without it and maybe it's, it's perfectly fine. And then you can build your, uh, like if, you, if you're product focused as a, like when a company is product focused and you really have to make ends meet, then that's, that part is important. Like it, otherwise you just end up a, uh, diving into it and spending like weeks and months trying to solve a problem that might not even be there. Yeah, but then at what point? So I, I can see, you know, you say Mark's example, you're building a CRUD app, you get your app going. At what point do you start recognizing? Because it seems like concurrency is a tool that it, it's not always obvious where it's going to pay off. I mean, some areas like outsourcing jobs from your main process and things like that, you know, so sending emails and kind of the typical things that we, we reach for a queuing system or something like that, you know, it's like, okay, go, go spawn a process and do the thing. 
but sometimes it's not always obvious where the payoff is. So are there certain triggers or trip points that you're going to run into in your REST app where you're going to go, you know, I really could use the concurrency model here? It gets to a point where you can, if you start to think about events, like if if you get to the point where you have different things that would happen at the same time in your domain, uh, not without necessarily forcing it, but you or consequences of certain domain actions that ripple through different points. And then you start to think about maybe I should have an event system here, or maybe I should try to decouple things so that all the, my, the failure cases around uh, all of these things are, uh, are, are separate. Like you, if I, for example, if I uh, place an order to buy certain things, I want to make sure that that specific order goes through, but a series of other operations connected to it, they don't need to happen at the same time. And they, more than that, they should happen independently without affecting the fact that I, that I placed the order. So when you start to think about things like maybe doing something and then uh, if it doesn't work, I, I want to retry. And some of, this, some of these semantics, they fit into a background processing kind of infrastructure, but in other cases, they, they don't. And uh, I think the main, uh, the main uh, sort of like actor that comes into place for this is when you start to think about what needs to work no matter how, no matter how your infrastructure is affected by, by problems. So if you start to think about, okay, I have a, you know, my golden path in my application that, that should work. Maybe my email provider is down, but my, my golden path should work. And then maybe my database starts to have problems, but maybe I can still perform some of the functionality, the most important one, if I leverage, for example, keeping some data in memory until my, my database comes back up. Because if, if it's really important, uh, then you, you do get to a point where you start to think about these things. I think in, in, other, in other languages and in other, in other frameworks, there, uh, there's a sort of a very strong dependency of certain elements in your infrastructure. I think the good thing that, that Elixir can give you is it gives you a lot of tools that you can use to write code that is more available, meaning it can survive more problems and isolating all of these failures. And when you start looking into this, then it's all, uh, it, the, the, the landscape changes completely because you need tools that let you build a problem in, with discrete components that survive no matter how the other ones uh, are, um, are performing. And what if you have another server and not just one? Because, you know, I mean, uh, no one has, or rather, very few people have physical servers now that they maintain, but uh, metaphorically speaking, anyone can pull the plug from your AWS instance. So what if that goes down? Where does my data go? Yeah, maybe it's all in the database, but maybe not. Because the more you, you put these concerns into play, the more you, you end up having different layers of complexity. And you cannot just stack everything vertically, sequentially into a series of things. At one point, uh, they will make you the sort of they will they will push in a way to to be laid out as a as a as a series of concurrent components it's like if you uh, like sometimes i don't know i tell people that if they imagine if they go up a mountain and they look at a town down uh, down below uh, they they see the buildings like they maybe they recognize a post office they recognize a bank they recognize other buildings and do all of these things function independently and at that from that height you can't really make up you can really understand what's happening inside each one of them. You just know that if that's a post office, probably it's going to do these things and the bank is going to, people are going to withdraw money and pay money. But you have the, at the same time, you have the vision of a, of a town working, but then you also know that these components work independently from one another. So I think at the moment your system grows to a certain level of complexity and you start to see those different buildings in it and they emerge because the domain sort of like helps you identifying them. That's where most of the times concurrency comes into play. It's true that in many types of applications, it's just, it's just much quicker or, or from day one, you sort of like identify uh, those components. Uh, but in other cases, it takes time for, uh, for them to emerge, for the architecture to show that it does need to be uh, refactored into, into concurrent processes. One other area that comes to mind, sorry, I don't mean to hog the mic, guys, is testing. So I may have an app that, is that basic REST app as uh, was brought up before, 
but I may want to run my test concurrently because it's, it's, it's not set up in a way that would really largely take much advantage of concurrency, but my test, running my test concurrently would make them run faster if I have multiple cores in my machine. So is that, is that a good gateway drug to this, or are you better off understanding how it affects your app first? So if you, if you want to do like fast async testing, the, the less, I would say, very, very, very bare-bone rule, but the less processes you have to coordinate, the easier it is to do. Like if you have like concurrent testing and then each test is basically run as a concurrent function, the less they touch other processes, the easier it is to coordinate because they don't, you know, they don't interfere with each other. The the problems come in when you have uh, things like, uh, for example, the classic one that I see in a lot of application is that uh, you have an agent, for example, uh, which is a process that stores the submit memory data and that agent has a name so that uh, you can reference it throughout your entire code base. And then when, when you write tests, you have two completely separate tests that potentially affect each other because they, at any given time, they can write or read data to this agent and they make assumptions about that data that gets violate they get violated by the other test and uh, at that point the only thing you can do if you don't refactor your code completely is okay these two tests they cannot run concurrently they cannot run in 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 parallel so i have to do one then restore my data and uh, or reset my data and then do the other which uh, i think like i i used i used to do ruby this was a problem that you would have when coordinating tests against the database. Like if you were doing an integration test and feature test against the database, you would have to synchronize at any given point in time because you wouldn't know what's already inside your database. It's exactly the same problem, just in a much, much more focused scope. So the sort of like the line that you walk at that point is I want to have my code which is which is simple. Like if you have a if you have an agent with a name and you look at that code once you write it, it's, it's really simple to read but it actually packs way more complexity than you think when uh, you th- you look at testing testing you you're definitely right is actually one of the best ways to isolate coupling that you have between uh, different parts of your system that ends up depending on what in the end is basically shared state like it's 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 always the same problem that process is a form of state and two things depend on it and suddenly you have to find yourself coordinating them, which is what you basically want to run away from in, by choosing the languages. I don't want to worry about shared state that affects how I write my code, even my test code. It's true that it's, it's not your production code, but still it is something that you touch on a daily basis. So it should be uh, easier than that. And it, it, there's, only, there's so much you can do without sort of like stepping back and re-architecting that code so that he starts to remove all of those dependencies. And that's very interesting. That's, uh, that's a bit challenging, but it's, it's one of the interesting bits about uh, structuring your code base. So Claudio, you, you mentioned earlier also that you come in and help these uh, projects when they're already mature. You know, that's when they're, they've grown to a point where they're like, okay, we're experiencing some growth issues, maybe some problems that we're not sure how to handle, we could really benefit from a consultant or some more experience. So I'm just curious in, in um, your experience, you don't name any names, of course, but like I'm assuming that most of the uh, organizations you're helping are using Phoenix as a, as a front end to their Elixir applications. Is that right? Majority, yes. Although there's a f- good amount, uh, to, my, to my surprise, uh, I would say, there's a good amount of, of customers say they do sometimes like data processing projects but in general if there's any form of web it's definitely phoenix yeah it's interesting i think it's a oh gosh it's a, i'm just thinking about like all the different use cases it's there's definitely a lot of a lot of phoenix around just http apis that's is basically the most common part a little bit less i think uh, or at least in my experience the real-time layer uh, is there channels and everything are, are there, but it's much, 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 much less. I think it's in a way it's 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 a less common need that that people have. Although it is by far the one that uh, creates more um, sort of like more work, more infrastructure is in in a way it, 
HTPIs are a very well, I think, understood problem If uh, in, in the sense that companies have tend to have experience in them, like no matter what the language is, not all just uh, Ruby companies that introduce Elixir, there's plenty of, of other languages in the mix. But all when it comes to testing and integration and load balances and then sessions and cookies and all of that, it's quite a, the knowledge you basically transport all of that. But when it comes to, to real time, it's, uh, it's way different, especially if you put into play anything that, anything that is not browser-based, like native applications and, uh, uh, and things like that. It's, quite a, it's where I think, in a way, it's where you have the opportunity to, I think, to contribute a lot in terms of, uh, uh, like, Finis offers a good skeleton, I think, but I don't think it's, that skeleton is, uh, is enough. If your real-time application is complex, you will, you will have to sort of, like, take that skeleton and extend it so that it covers your your use case better because the shape of of real time program is just is just much more uh, uh, complex. There's way more things to take into account, and you know, like the network is bad and it falls apart. And mobile devices that, that the network layer just does whatever it wants to do. I don't know. I got, but like I'm on a project where at one point we would get devices that are, where the application was closed, and then 30 minutes later you would just see the application coming back online, and no one was touching the phone. And no one knows how that happened, but it's it was just like reconnecting in the background, and so things that require like a certain amount of creativity in debugging and uh, and and I mean I I don't have much hair myself, but I did have a little bit more before starting uh, on these things. I was wondering if there are any. I think it's helpful for me to learn sometimes from other people's mistakes. I'd prefer not to make them myself, even though I continually do. But like from some of these mistakes that you've seen, you've come in possibly to a project and like, what is some of the worst, I don't know, abuses or architectures or, or patterns that you've seen where people have really kind of gotten themselves into a, a pain point? And if, if that's something that we can learn from. The, honestly, I haven't seen anything that I, I, I was thinking like, oh my God, that's, that's uh, terrible. That only applies to when I look at my own things, like after uh, six months to a year, then I definitely feel like maybe I should rewrite this. But in terms of what I've seen done by, by other people, I think, it, and I think this is a testament to the, uh, sort of like to the language and the platform. You, you don't, or I haven't seen anything that is really bad, or uh, I would say bad in a, in a way that is, it wouldn't be bad in any other language. Like you, you see examples of uh, maybe like code that is incredibly coupled or convoluted logic or things that you just want to run away from, but it, it could be written in any other language and it would still be uh, equally, um, equally difficult to look at. I think the most common things that it's, uh, I, see, I see everywhere, there's a... Uh, it's when like it's when so like people get really excited about a certain features of the language and they go a little bit overboard with them, and uh, I think the classic one is always um, macros. Like macros is the one that time sync. I would say uh, in terms of debugging and uh, because it's it's very it, it can be very pervasive. There's a I've seen like some in some cases code bases where the entire part of the business logic was revolving around. Uh, the usage of some some macros that would look really that would look really clever. I mean, they were they're clever because once you get them to work, they you do feel clever. But the price of refactoring uh, them out when it comes to that complexity was a lot. Like, well, it, it in some cases it would take like maybe a couple of weeks uh, to to remove everything and to replace it with a. With functions and uh, to circle back to a, to a, what we were sort of like talking about before, the, the main reason would be that you get to a point where it gets really difficult to test. The the other thing is, uh, and that's a quite a quite a. I think it's a, it's a topic you might have talked about it a bit already, maybe in a previous episode. So I'm I'm sorry because I'm digging just out of my memory. But configuration is another topic. I think that it's currently a hot topic in the community, but. Is especially if you overlay that with deployment strategies, it's where like you sort of like you like you draw it on a board like a, a sort of like a Cartesian product of configuration options, strategies, and deployment options, and then 
you you really you just like throw a, a throw a dart into it and then pick one uh, pick one combination because it's so uh, complicated to tame where you have environment variables and compile time va- uh, values and runtime values and then no one understands uh, what's happening uh, anymore and it works on my machine but not on staging but it works in production and in the end. Uh, you just don't know which database you're connecting to. Like it, it can it can definitely evolve into into that. So I think in in general, it's a uh, uh, I would say like abusing some some constructs. I haven't uh, like I I've been I read accounts by other people around like abusing uh, like gen servers and OTP constructs, uh, but I haven't come across much of that. Myself, I think maybe maybe a little bit, maybe a little too, too many agents I've seen in the wild. I think using them using them a bit less would be beneficial, but I don't want to make it too much of a blanket statement about that because it really is uh, a matter of just looking at the application and see, uh, you know, what are you putting in that agent? This is something that everyone has to access in your code. So why are you uh, putting it inside a single process? Maybe that's a better. There's a better way to do that. The the other thing which I I encourage people honestly not to be scared about is reading some Erlang when needed. Because that's I mean I in the end I think it's the commas at the end of the line that scare people off. And uh, I can I can confirm that was what put me off of it back when it was first open sourced. I was like, nope, syntax is weird. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash elixir. It's, so in a way, in a way, I, I, I prefer, I, I'll say it, uh, I prefer Erlang syntax over elixir syntax from the point of view of how consistent it is. It's pretty much, it's extremely, the syntax is extremely consistent from my point of view, but the language is... Uh, less powerful in areas that are more suitable for for the type of projects and things that I'm doing, like like string manipulation or uh, date times or um, macros versus uh, like intelligent use of macros or rather or rather hoping to make intelligent use of macros compared to what uh, compared how trickier that is into in uh, in Erlang. I think I think the ergonomics of uh, Elixir as language are. Uh, I mean, I enjoy them more. I think it's. I think it, it is a step forward in terms of how more easily you can combine things together when you write a program. But I do think that if you can get past some of the quirkiness of Erlang, it's quite it's quite a good thing to look at because you have less tools available, so it forces you to to simplify what you want to write. It's much more difficult to, uh, in a way, to shoot yourself in the foot with a, for example, with incredibly clever macros because you're you're not going to do that. In Erlang, like it's it's not as uh, easy to sneak in a macro, or you have a the language is is uh, when you when it comes, for example, to embracing immutability. For example, like once you once you assign a variable or you bind a variable, you cannot rebind it with the same name, which is something that Elixir allows rebinding. That's something that it helps understanding the concept of immutability much better because this this thing you give it a name and that's that's it, that's the name. You cannot do it again. Uh, it gets clunk. It becomes clunky in uh, in production code because you then you see things like people calling this connection request production. one, request two, request right. three. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But if it, it, it solidifies the knowledge that once you, for example, if you read, uh, if you if you perform a side effect and you read something, then you you're gonna get back uh, potentially a different version of the same thing, and you're gonna have to give it a different name. And it makes that code uh, not particularly pleasant to read, like request one, two, three, four, it's not great, but it's really explicit what's happening. Where uh, in some cases, uh, because of rebinding in Elixir, like the pipe operator removes a lot of this in terms of uh, being a problem. But in some cases you see, if you're not careful, 
uh, you you may scratch your head for a few minutes before realizing that oh you have a variable that has the same name of a function and uh, because of that you're shadowing uh, uh, the function you want to use or you're rebinding the same variable but you forgot about that so there's there's certainly the compiler helps in some cases but i found that at least in my personal sort of like learning journey uh, some of the ideas of the platform they they sort of like they made sense in my head once I I saw them in uh, in Erlang. I started with Elixir and then went a bit uh, back to Erlang and then back to Elixir. And I think the comparison between like making a comparison between the two languages distilled some ideas right to the to the core, be independently from the API that you use to manipulate them. Which I think it's a it's it's useful, like especially if uh, if Elixir is the first functional languages you approach. I think uh, doing a bit of Erlang like serves as a reinforcement because at the end of the day, sooner or later you might need to read at least read it uh, and possibly uh, write a bit. And I think it's worth uh, it's worth doing it might, again. Same as same as OTP, you might not need it three months in, six months in, but later on it might be useful, especially because a lot of uh, uh, really good tooling has been built in Erlang and there's not necessarily a, an equivalent in Elixir yet, or maybe there's not going to be one because it wouldn't be sustainable to replicate that, uh, that tool in, a, in, a, in Elixir if it's already available in, in Erlang. So you just want to, I think it's, you, if you pick one, you can definitely pick the other where the, the biggest learning is the first language and the other one is, uh, is, is much less um, daunting is there a resource or anything that you would recommend for people who wanted to kind of start dipping in a little bit to erlang i think if you joe armstrong's books are uh, i i i think they're thorough the only thing is that in some cases the examples may be a bit far from uh, what like you know if you if you come in, in terms of like web programming uh you might you might not have come across uh, uh, use cases that uh, show up in uh, in the more classical books because uh, it might not be the domain you you're familiar with. So uh, in that sense, you might find yourself in having to understand both the language and the problem, uh, which is a bit it, it might be a bit uh, too much. I think you know in that way, I found that one one thing that I, some people told me that it, it works for them uh, is. If you if you've done Elixir and you've uh, you've you've read uh, Elixir in action, in action, sorry, Sasha Yurich book, then uh, my uh, Francesco Cesarini's book, like uh, designing for scalability with Erlang and OTP. Uh, by the way, thank you, Francesco, for such a long title because it's it's very easy to remember. <laughs> uh, but that that's a good. Uh, I think there's definitely a few parallels between the two books, meaning you can see the same uh, idea expressed in uh, in both languages and uh, also the designing is uh, for scalability has a way more content beyond that which i think is uh, it's very useful in terms of uh, distributed systems and all of that it's it's the type of book that you you pick and you read uh, chunks of it at different points in in your learning journey like it's not it's not something you read all in one shot uh, but that gives you the the ability to map the same ideas and see it in a uh, in uh, in both languages, I think the main thing is that once you've done once you've done like enough elixir, I think you you want to refresh basically about the syntax and uh, maybe a little bit around the tooling, which is similar but it's not the same. It's uh, it tends to overlap for a lot of ideas because there's been a lot of cross pollination between the two communities in the last few years, especially in terms of tooling. So thankfully, package manager. Is the same, uh, although that, that there's mix and rebar, and you may have to learn a bit, a bit more about configuration and how to build your application. But for uh, uh, especially to recode, I think it's uh, uh, you can definitely have uh, easy enough mapping between uh, between the two things. So I wanted to ask you, since you've looked at quite a lot of Elixir projects, what would you say the percentage of people actively using Dialyzer on their projects is? <laughs> Not many, meaning. I've seen people increasingly using 
more type specification. So for I'm I'm not sure uh, how much people who are listening are familiar with dialyzer. So I'll just like give like a thirty second introduction to the tool. So dialyzer is a is an optimistic type checker. It's not part of your compiled process, but it ships with uh, uh, most of it, or rather, dialyzer ships with your installation of Erlang. Uh, you might have to add maybe like one one package to use it from Elixir, but it is there as a tool. And what it does is it does a form of static analysis on your compiled code, and it it's an optimistic type checker. So it doesn't it doesn't lie, but so it doesn't it cannot be a hundred percent accurate because it's not a, it's it that's not what a tool is for. But when it says there's something doesn't add up, meaning you say like these two things don't work with each other, it's 100% sure that that's the case. So you can use it to sort of like annotate your code, which has the other benefit of if you annotate it using specifications and types, you, you get really nice docs out of it. But also you can do a static check of how things are wired together in your application. The trouble is that it's as a tool, if you do like a, even like if you do like a, if you do a cold run, it's it's quite slow, and if you, even if you run it regularly, it takes long enough for it to run on a code base to be uh, a bit painful. And the other thing, this is all things that are being addressed in terms of uh, how this this can change into the future. The other thing is, it's uh, that the errors sometimes are not incredibly friendly or easy to parse, like for just the human eye. Like you, you see like a wall of red uh, with really big data structures that just says like this, this map with uh, 35 keys doesn't match this other map, which looks incredibly similar, but I can't really tell you the difference between the two. You kind of have to hunt it. And uh, like, if you're like me, I just like bump up my phone size and then spend like a, a good 10, 15 minutes just by comparing one key. Uh, one after the other. So after the first time or second time that you do that, it gets a little bit repetitive. So it's useful if you can sort of like tame the the complexity. But uh, I've seen a lot of, you know, like willpower by people. I just like very optimistic, like they start using it. Over time, a lot of people give up. So in that respect, I think uh, my suggestion in that respect is maybe try to use it. It's, uh, it's you probably want to make it part of a, of CI, if you have CI running, I'm not sure if you can run it locally. I believe VS Code has good integration with it in the form of a persistent server that might speed things up, but I'm not a VS Code user, so I'm not 100% sure of that. I know that it, on very on smaller code bases, I, I use it frequently. On big application code, which ironically is where you would want it the most, it tends to uh, slip through the cracks and uh, become uh, like it it just tends to be like sometimes forgotten which is a shame because it does save you in in some cases All right so i'm not the only one no 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 <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a shame because it's it by the way it's if you use it with you using it with the list there's a, the, the it, it gets it gets tricky simply because the, the the error messages in many cases are they are erlang error messages so that goes back to what I was saying before. If you get familiar with Erlang, then you, you sort of like make a, a quick translation of what you're seeing in terms of Erlang terms, and then you map them to Elixir terms, and they become understandable. But that's what discourages a lot of people when they see like errors related to protocols or uh, error related to uh, like things like supertypes and things that don't like you, you don't come across those those terms and those ideas unless you are using dialyzer itself. They don't they don't just surface in the language. You you I, you never hear of supertypes when you talk about Elixir unless you are actually using the dialyzer and and running it. So it, it, that's the part where it gets discouraged. I uh, like in a way I I know I, I'm just gonna throw like throw you like a, a, a I think like um as I say on a, on a, on a silver platter, Josh, but. The Elm compiler is uh, sort of has a goes into that direction with a much more, I think, like beginner friendly attitude. I think Elixir, uh, Elixir and Dialyzer have the potential to get there. We're just not there yet. 
Yeah, I'd love to see a, a Google Summer of Code or something, or just someone that's extremely generous with their time, figure out how to make Dialyzer as pleasant to use as your sort of design tool help as the Elm compiler is, because that's my favorite thing about Elm. And I've, I've not been able to find a way to get anything like that workflow with Dialyzer, though I've tried. So there's definitely going to be like, or at least I'm a, no, I'm a bit fuzzy on the details, but there's definitely effort in terms of there's been a recent, like recent merges into OTP that uh, like in the, in the Erlang source and the OTP source to provide more metadata around compiled bin files that could be used to have richer type analysis that you could leverage uh, uh, through a compiler. Whether that's going to lead to a proper type checker or anything like that, I'm not entirely sure because it's, uh, it's, all, in, uh, it's all in progress. But uh, certainly there's already, uh, Elixir already has, for example, like uh, if, you, if you've seen like some error messages that you have in development when uh, you have specific exceptions or like missing pattern matches, it's already able to tell you a lot about your code in, uh, in an error scenario that uh, could also be re- leveraged in some ways at uh, a compile time. So I, I hopefully that's going to happen uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future. But at this point in time, I think it's worth looking into it. If, definitely, if you, if you write an open source project or if you write a library, I think it's worth spending time into it. Like a, a, a big application is a different matter, but uh, if you provide a, an, an open source package, I think providing types and uh, specifications, it's, uh, it's incredibly important because uh, it helps people navigating the docs. And if you I would, do I would that, say, yeah, sorry, I would, say, I would say if you do provide specs in your library, please do run Dialyzer because yeah. sometimes I've had problems where a library explicitly lied about the spec and I couldn't use things because Dialyzer saw the spec and said, no, this is not valid, but it wasn't, the spec was wrong. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, that, in that case, yeah, definitely, definitely run it. it it's, a pro- it's a problem beyond a certain code size. So, I mean, unless you are, uh, you're very ambitious with the scope of your library and you're writing something really huge, it's, uh, I think it's manageable for a lot of projects, open source projects to, to sort of like make it part of the tool chain and possibly of their, of their CI. So do you have any stories or examples of systems that you've worked on that, uh, that you've been able to you know, help them out with, with these particular solutions? So I've, I've spent pretty much, I'm going for like two, almost two years on a long running assignment plus other small ones. So digging, for, digging in, uh, in my memory, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to think about what I'm doing now. So I'm like, I've been working on the, also like the backend system for a, for a real time application for a, like this application has multiple versions on uh, mobile devices. And it's sort of like a shared, uh, like shared, shared activity with uh, with a chat part and uh, um, shared documents. There's a little bit of a, of everything with a lot of integrations around emailing and SMSs and uh, other sort of like external providers and and things like that. It's quite a. Uh, it was one of those systems where you feel like you're extending like like an octopus and uh, touching all sorts of other uh, parts in a in a very large infrastructure, and. Um, and it's interesting because, in a way, there's a it's been like over time, like back and forth in uh, in sort of like try to to keep the complexity under control. And uh, I think one thing that I would say is that, and I don't know, like I'm trying to understand if there's anything that can be open sourced uh, out of this. Uh, I'm just speaking with the rest of the team about it. Uh, but one thing that is definitely worth, I think looking into or one thing that worked out really fine is documentation generating documentation from uh, from your code which is something that it's in a way i think it's not much explored into elixir i think other languages have more of that because they're um, because uh, for example in some cases there the, the the language uh, has uh, specific properties that make it more uh, they make it easier to do that, but for example, if you ask yourself the question, you know, like you, you write an HTTP endpoint and there's Swagger, Swagger there's, uh, there's all of sorts of other tools, uh, but what about, like if you, if you use Phoenix and you use channels, what about documenting all of those things? If you're like, it was just blobs of JSON that go back and forth, and uh, how do you document that? How do you make sure that your documentation uh, uh, works? And how do you make sure that you're not lying about it? And uh, it's actually what it is. And uh, uh, hopefully it sits in the code and it's and it's checked and everything. So one thing that worked out fine, which I 
I don't know, I encourage people looking into into it a bit is uh, if you have to stick with JSON as your uh, sort of like encoding, maybe think about like one idea we had that worked out fine was using the using JSON schema, for example, uh, as a way to check uh, payloads in and out of a channel. And uh, also because of that, generate documentation out of it. So that's like one of the things that I think macros are good for, uh, sort of like looking at your code and understanding how your code uh, is structured to generate some data about it. So in, in this case, it would mean like looking at all of the actions that you have in your channels and then for each one of them, running some automated uh, checks uh, at Copal time that guarantee that the docs you wrote about it are, are true. If you if you apply a schema to some data, then your documentation should also respect the schema, for example. And um, and these are things that you you know, like especially when it comes to I think a lot of the tutorials you read and documentation you read about about Phoenix and books as well, you you don't see uh, much of that explored because it's it's very rare that you can see a code base of a certain size where this becomes uh, really a, a problem because maybe you don't have enough uh, enough actions, enough, enough uh, you know, different public APIs in your channels or you don't have versioning into play already or you don't have to support legacy clients because the problem with mobile applications is that no one updates their phones reliably. So you've got the same version running for six months and then you have like the same operation that has like three, four different versions that have to run at any given time to support everyone. And people get confused by it because uh, you have to document each one of them. And when someone has a problem and they have a version that is too old, you don't know where to look. So all of these things, I think, is where uh, if, if for, for maybe for people who are interested in contributing to the community, I think there's, a, there's a certainly a lot of things that you could be researched uh, around this. And the other thing was I've seen some systems where people get to, and I, I'm guilty on that in some ways, you get enthusiastic about the language and then you think like, I'm just going to implement this thing by by myself and uh, make it custom uh, for this because it, it would be neat to build it with OTP or it would be neat to build it in this way because it really fits like a glove uh, for this use case. But then this thing starts to grow up a bit and then you get to the point where it's just too complex and you you just don't want to you just don't want to get rid of it so because you it's the thing that you built yourself so in some cases i think it might be worth like spending a little bit more time thinking about the problem and just accepting the fact that maybe you know you maybe you want to use a queuing system and uh, it's okay to use a queue system if you already have a roadmap in front of you where uh, you're, you're gonna, you know that you're going to have uh, maybe like two, three servers for resilience and then you don't want to lose messages or things uh, that happen in your system. And if you put those things on the table, yeah, you could build everything like that yourself, but chances are that it might be not as best as it could be compared to something that has been, you know, like battle-tested by way more developers with way more production hours. So that's, that's the thing. What, and the last thing, I don't know, I don't know if I sort of like, I, I don't know if I sort of like steered away from uh, the, the original question, but in a way, one thing that I think the community is sort of like getting into is uh, reasoning about things at a, at a different level. Uh, like when you, uh, in a way, there's a, Dave Thomas gave recently a talk, like a very, uh, I found it very uh, provocative and not necessarily, uh, like, I'm, I was sort of like separate the contents of the talk from the from the delivery in some ways. Uh, but uh, in one way, the big question is that like, are we, are we sort of like prisoner about uh, the way things have been done so far? And should we look into maybe like start from scratch with some ideas and think about problems differently? And, uh, it's sort of like a middle ground between uh, uh, following uh, what has been done before and trying to uh, sort of like start from scratch is maybe we need uh, uh, more abstractions that talk about more like the semantics rather than the implementation. Like a lot of the conversation around uh, when, you, when you talk about Elixir is I'm going to use a gen server 
and I'm going to use a supervisor and I'm going to use these things, but that's an implementation detail. Uh, in some ways, uh, it will be, for some people, it's, it, it gets, it, that, that's not concrete enough. Once you, if you start to talk about components that, for example, I want to have a thing or a component that is the only component in my entire system that does a specific operation, or uh, I want to have uh, different workers that are completely independent from each other and uh, they pick up a job and they do it. And when you start to talk about this semantics, then uh, then you can reason about those and then the rest becomes an implementation uh, detail and then you start to understand why the language includes so many building blocks because those building blocks are necessary to build these things. But in some cases, we start by saying we you need them without uh, giving more context about why they're there in the first place. Interesting. Can we get a link to that talk by Dave Thomas? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. I'll post it in, uh, in the show notes, I guess. All right. Are there any other areas that we should explore? I don't know if everyone's happy. I, I think from my point of view, I think we, we cover pretty much an extensive ground. So I don't know if uh, there's, there's more to throw on the, on the table. Okay. Well, then um, if people want to find you online, uh, where you blog, where you tweet, where you post your code, where is all that stuff? So, so I'm, I've got a, the same username everywhere now. So I'm, I'm cloud spelled C-L-O-U-D, 8421, pretty much everywhere, GitHub, Twitter, and things like that. I apologize for, the, for that username, but it's, it's from the time when Yahoo was a thing and, you know, you try to get a username and they suggest variations. And then I pick this one and uh, it's just too late to change it. Uh, so I'll, uh, I, I, it would be in the show notes, but I'm basically the same uh, uh, username. Maybe we'll feel free to ping for anything. All right, perfect. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Um, Josh, do you want to start us off with picks? I sure do. So uh, Elm Europe just wrapped up. And right now there are two live streams, uh, are recordings of the live stream. That are up. Lots of really good talks in there. I haven't finished all of them, but uh, I definitely recommend uh, Evan Chiplicki's talk, where he a big part of the talk is discussing how the browser API for getting things like viewport height and whatnot is really complicated. And he goes through sort of some design thinking about what do we actually want to do here that makes for a much much simpler API for the things you actually care about doing. And it's kind of like a meta talk about what Elm design is in the first place. And then uh, Brian Hicks has a separate talk where he gather, he talks about gathering sort of uh, problem experiences when you're trying to solve a problem. And uh, they're, they're a good combination to watch together. So anyway, lots of other really cool talks there. Um, there's also one about LitViz, which is uh, sort of like a IPython notebook type thing for uh, Elm and visualizations. And it's, uh, it's really cool. Anyway, so lots of good stuff there. It's a very dense pick, so I'll leave it at that. Nice. Evan's always an interesting person to talk to. So uh, I'm also curious just, you know, between, uh, I guess, Josh and Mark um, and our listeners, would people be interested in an Elm episode? I'm, I'm always interested in talking about Elm. I think that comes across. <laughs> I, I think it, Elm is super interesting. I've just done exploratory looking into it. I think Josh is the one with the most experience here at least yeah i i ask because we've had evan and i'm gonna feel bad because i don't remember his name but we've had a couple of people on talking about elm so was it um, was it richard He's yeah the, yeah that's what i thought yeah so, so yeah. Uh, elm elm uh, and elixir both had pretty substantial impact on the way i built software and that's the reason i like both of them so much so Awesome. We'll see if we can line them up. I know that a lot of the functional programming uh, principles and some of the philosophies behind the languages are pretty similar. So we'll we, definitely. Yeah, well, what we could do is we could, uh, there's a thing called Alchemy, which is a, an Elm to Elixir sort of transpiler of sorts uh, for building things like gen servers with the Elm pattern. So uh, hmm. that would be very interesting to me at least. Well, maybe we can line up the Elm episode one week and then the Alchemy one the next week. Anyway, uh, Mark, do you have some picks for us? Sure do. Um, I've been working with a GraphQL uh, for about two years. And uh, Elixir's implementation 
that provides that service on the back end is the Absinthe library. And uh, so I've come to a different company recently and I'm introducing GraphQL and I just love when I love sharing it with people and I love when they start to kind of get it. And, you know, so like right now we're looking at using it for inter-service communication. Uh, so you can have much more specific requests about the data that you want. And then even having a REST interface that we are providing like as an API to a client, like uh, our customers are using this API. So we have versioned APIs, but then having that actually turn uh, create GraphQL queries uh, so that we have one implementation of how the data is fetched uh, and then we can version it internally easier. And so I'm just having a blast with that and I'm just going to share Absinthe and GraphQL as uh, fun things to play with. And I wanted to pile on just since you're talking about it, uh, I'm working on something with it right now using uh, Absinthe Phoenix. And if you haven't looked at it, so that lets you, among other things, do basically describe your controllers as a GraphQL so your controller actions are basically a, um, a module attribute that describes the GraphQL query to perform. And uh, it's really, really good. Anyway, so if you want to do a static site, but you're also building out your GraphQL API, which is the situation we're in, uh, it's pretty much perfect. Awesome. Very cool. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So uh, this weekend I was working on my yard. Um, we've lived here for like eight years. And um, the weed situation in our yard has just been terrible and so i finally just gave up we sprayed roundup on the whole yard killed all the grass killed all the weeds and i tilled it under i and one thing that I've, I've i've really gotten to uh like using lately is uh the home depot tool rental so um i don't own a tiller i don't know that i will ever need to own a tiller but uh they had this gigantic um, hydraulic tiller that I used on my yard and uh, that worked out pretty nicely. So um, I'm going to pick that. Also a few other things that I'm just going to put out there just because I like connecting with people. So I'm going to be going to Podcast Movement, which is the big podcasting conference. It's going to be in Philadelphia this year. And so if you're going to be there, I've, it's funny, I've met podcast listeners at podcaster events. So if you're a podcaster and you're going to be there, um, I, I look forward to talking to you. Yeah. Or if you're from Philadelphia, just let me know. Just email me, chuck at devchat.tv. Also, if you're a podcaster, I have some uh, software that I've been building to manage my podcast processes. And I'm getting ready to actually want some users on the system just to see how that all works out. So if you're interested in that, you can also email me. And then finally, um, I'm going to be at the Framework Summit. I know a bunch of people who use Elixir do web development. And so if you're interested in front-end frameworks, uh, Framework Summit is a conference about front-end frameworks, and they're going to have core teams or core team members from pretty much all of the front-end frameworks that you've heard of um, that are still sort of actively and widely used. So that includes uh, React, Vue, and Angular. And then uh, I'm actually going to be speaking for 15 minutes on uh, Stimulus, which is something that came out of Basecamp at DHH, if you're familiar with the Ruby community. And yeah, so it should be really great. It's, it's close to here. It's in Park City, uh, Park City, Utah. So up in the mountains, uh, terrific place to be. It's going to be in the falls. So it's just going to be gorgeous. So if you want to come out to that, I'm happy to connect with people there as well. Uh, Claudio, what are your picks? So I'm not sure if I, hopefully this episode is going to be out before that, but in in roughly a month from now, uh, 16th of August, uh, we're going to run uh, the Code Elixir London, which is a conference. Last year, it had a different name, but its uh, tickets are out. So if you are in close proximity to London or you really like to travel, it's a one day, one track. And uh, uh, I would really love for, for, uh, for more people to attend. Uh, last year, it was uh, people were happy about it. There's a strong... It's, is community oriented, so the whole way track is is particularly entertaining because it's quite a there's quite a lot of movement, uh, very informal. So I encourage everyone if you if you can to attend. And uh, it's compared to other conferences, uh, we're trying to make it accessible even from the point of view of the ticket price. So uh, definitely uh, beginner friendly and all of it. So hopefully hopefully I can see uh, more people because of this, and. Uh, the second thing is uh, 
it's completely unrelated, but I've been following a YouTube channel by there's this person in uh, in uh, in Turkey. My wife is Turkish, so she she introduced me to like a few different channels that she follows. And there's this this person. Uh, he's called uh, Typhoon, and he's a uh, it takes care of a lot of animals. He has a YouTube channel where he, he publishes, basically, it's a sort of a diary about what he's doing um, in terms of taking care of stray dogs or uh, squirrels or cats or pretty much, I, I, I think, anything that moves. But he is, it's quite, I mean, it's the way is, it's, it's just like, it warms, it warms your heart when you look at how he treats animals. But more than that, it's, this, this YouTube channel is also the way he funds uh, a lot of the uh, things he does in terms of like uh, buying food and uh, preparing shelters and all of that. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, I, so, I don't know, I'm just trying to sort of like throw the link out there because uh, it's one of those things where a subscription uh, or like, you know, subscribing actually does make a, make a difference. And it sort of like, it, I mean, the squirrels are really cute. What can I say? Uh, it's it's really something that uh, it's nice to look at as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us about all this stuff. Thank you. It was it was it was a pleasure. It was very definitely a pleasure. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, there are some folks that listen to this and get some inspiration about how to work around some of the things that they're seeing. Definitely, definitely. I, I think it's a really good time to. It's always a good time to join the community, but I think it's a really good time now because there's definitely something for everyone at every level of of complexity. And I think it's uh, it's a very welcoming community. It's quite a uh, it's friendly. the The core team is uh, is friendly. All of the the, the biggest projects uh, really take care of getting people uh, included. So I would encourage anyone uh, to. Uh, try and approach uh, and just uh, just uh, just ask if they get stuck, and then uh, uh, if people are always happy to to unblock in whether it's on the IRC channel or Slack or whatever whatever other channel. But yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for coming, and we will talk to everybody next week. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.